Welcome to the Payments Podium Podcast, hosted by the payments professor himself, Kevin Olson. This podcast discusses the past, present, and the possibilities of the payments industry. Here's the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Payments Podium. I'm the Payments Professor, and today we've got a series that we've actually created that is on the history of checks and what does it mean to what we're doing today. I've got the honor of having Bill Safiki on the show with us. He was in that first episode where he started telling us about his long, outstanding career and what has happened in check processing. He told us about some of the things that happened in the 50s and the 60s, things like the invention of Micra. He then told us what happened in the 70s and 80s, how we got a nine-digit routing number, why we got a nine-digit routing number. And in the last episode, we had just ended with what was happening in the 80s, a couple of very important things that happened from the Federal Reserve Banks, the Monetary Control Act, expedited funds availability, and then he threw kind of a curveball to the professor and mentioned a non-par check, something I'd never heard of, but he made it make sense. We're going to continue that discussion by going into what's happening on the 90s. And Bill, Thank you for being on the podcast. I want to welcome you back and just appreciate you having here, having you here. Well, thank you, Kevin. It's my pleasure to be back. And again, in the last episode, we were talking about things that happened in the 80s and the acts that had taken place that were so big to what got us to where we are now. Can you, you start off by telling us now, what, well, what happened in the 90s? Let's get a little bit closer to what people would understand today, even though all the 90s were a little bit back. Well, Kevin, if I may, before we go to the 90s, a couple more things about the 80s I'd like to bring in. The the last session, I talked about some of the regulatory things that happened. I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the operational changes that we started seeing in the 80s. Um, So some efficiencies, you know, with software, uh, you know, and reader sorter intelligence, you know, being advanced in, in the uh, late 80s, we started seeing the ability to intelligently find sort checks. Now, what I mean by that is prior to, you know, some sophistication uh, that came about, uh, checks were being rendered back to the customer each month in their statement. And in order to get the month's worth of checks uh, pulled together by account number, they had to be sorted. And they would go through the reader sorter device and sort it on a digit by digit basis. So, you know, you would start with the last digit and you'd go all the way up on up to the first digit. So if it was an eight digit account number, mm-hmm. all the checks that were going out in a statement cycle needed to be passed through the reader sorter eight times. Wait, they, it would actually like circle around and pass through and pass through and pass through? Oh, yeah, because, of course, you had to, you know, get them in order. Yeah, think about if you had a deck of cards in your hand uh-huh. and, and you wanted to put them together numerically, right? So you would start moving them around or putting them on the table, right? You'd put all the ones, you'd put all the twos, you'd put all the threes, the fours, et cetera. And basically, you know, that's what we did with the checks. You had to keep running them through digit by digit on the account number field, until after the last digit, now they were all in numerical sequence, one through whatever, and then they would go off and be manually inserted into the uh, statements. Oh, wow. Manually. Manually, people. That means people had to do that type of stuff. That's how it started, yes. So the intelligent fine sorting uh, that I mentioned is what you would do here is on the first pass uh, of the checks. So, I, so let's say I had 50,000 checks. 
that needed to go out in a statement cycle. You'd run those through one time, and then the software would build what we called keys as to how to sort those checks on fewer number of subsequent passes so that on the last pass, they were now all in sequence. So what used to take maybe eight individual passes would probably, if I'm, my memory recalls, probably only wind up being maybe five passes, uh, maybe in some cases even four. But that's where intelligent fine sorting then started bringing about efficiency in the back office operation. Um, in addition to that, um, another aspect of dealing with statements had to do with bulk filing. And in this situation here, usually on the day one, remember in the first session, we described a little bit of day one. Mm -hmm. During the capture process, and particularly of the in-clearing items, uh, it would be common to start sorting the checks as they were being captured by a, a cycle. So let's assume that you had your statements were spread out over the 10, 10 cycles over the month. So roughly, you know, every uh, three days or so or two business days, then you would put all the checks for cycle one in a pocket and all the checks for cycle two in a pocket and so forth. So that started reducing some of the subsequent handling that was required on the actual statement rendition day. So on statement rendition day, I already had these items culled out, and then I would use the intelligent fine sort to, to finalize the, uh, the, the sequencing of those items for statement. And still staying in the statement area in, in the 80s, we also introduced check safekeeping. So what this meant then was that the paying bank would not return the check in the statement to its customer, but would safe keep it in on its premises. And again, just another step towards more efficiency in the process. Wow. So then, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just saying that, that it's just, you know, I hope people are realizing that this again was so much manual work, manual effort. And today, even though a lot of that does apply to what we do today, it is not the same way. We're, we're doing the same things, but we do them in such a different method and way. And hopefully, people, you're getting a new appreciation for the work you do have to do by hearing how it used to be done. Um, can, can you get us, though, into what happened in the 90s as far as developments and changes then? Yes. Well, again, as a prelude to the 90s, we have the, the latter part of the 80s, and this was at the time... Uh, where I left the bank then and I joined, uh, was actually Burroughs when I joined the company in 86, but in uh, the latter part of 86, the name was changed to Unisys. So Unisys, IBM, NCR, and BankTech were probably the biggest names at that time in providing solutions for check processing and remittance and lockbox processing. So in the late 80s, both Unisys and IBM introduced high-speed check imaging systems. And basically, you know, the, the, both companies had high-speed check processing systems, but now what they did was they introduced image capture devices or cameras, as we think of them, into the transport itself, replacing the microfilm uh, readers that, that were there, which I didn't previously mention. 
Um, so now we had image cameras right into transport so that as the check was traveling down the track, the picture of the front and back was taken. But Unisys also introduced courtesy amount recognition or CAR as it's called. And we, when we think of courtesy amount, we think of that handwritten amount that we write on the upper right-hand portion of a check, or uh -huh. if it was a business check, it's usually computer printed over there. And in the CAR software, uh, at least in the Unisys implementation initially, was right at reader, sport, reader sorter speeds so that it was attempting to recognize the amount of the item so that a subsequent uh, view of the item would not be required by an operator to enter the amount. Now, initially when imaging was introduced, it was more for the operational efficiency because we were still not at the point in the late 80s and early 90s of being able to use that image to clear the check as we know it today but it did bring about efficiency in the operation. And it also turned the entire workflow around. In prior to the imaging, when a check came in from the branch or a deposit ticket came in from the branch, an operator had to encode the amount in the microline of that check so that when it went through the reader sorter, it had all characteristics of the microline, the routing number, the account number, and the amount. With the image processing that was introduced in the late 80s, the workflow was I can take these same pieces of paper that came in from the branch and immediately put them on a reader sorter and take an image of the check and read a portion of the microline that was already present on the check the remainder of the information required for each of those pieces of paper was now completed through CAR for the amount, as well as a display of the image for an operator to key any other missing information. Oh, cool. So again, that now, because we were still clearing checks by paper, uh -huh. we, we still had to put the amount back on the microline. So people still had to like do something to it. They still physically or had to do something to it. Well, we, we didn't have people doing this. We had machines doing this. We, we refer to this function as power encoding. Now we don't use this anymore because of imaging. So think again of the process. We received paper from the branches. We put it on the sorter. We captured whatever microline was present. We took an image of the front and back of the check. We attempted to read the amount through the car recognition and everything else that had to be done was done through image display with operator fingers on a keypad. So now we had a good microline of these checks. The power encode device was a slower speed reader sorter, about 500 documents per minute. And we were, you know, you still keep the integrity of these items. So the items that maybe went into pocket two on the capture pass might be my highest, my, my next deadline items. And I would put those on a power encoder and the software 
would download the full microline that was completed through car and data entry. And as it read each check on the power and code device, it read whatever microline was there, compared it to the data that was downloaded to the power and code device, and then encode the amount or any other information that wasn't present in the microline. So again, these checks went through a sec some of the checks went through a second time. And the thing that was, was nice about changing the workflow is that on the prime pass, as long as I had a routing number, I could begin sorting checks based typically on deadline orientation. So I didn't have to go through all the checks to get my high priority ones on the power and code pass. I would present them to the power and code pass in deadline sequence. All right, so you're telling me somebody's job title was power encoder, or at least it should have been? Yeah, that's uh, basically what they did. In fact, in some cases, one operator could monitor two devices because there wasn't much operator uh, intervention required. Uh, you know, that's just a term that today would mean something completely different, but I think it would attract people to the industry to say, you can now be a power encoder. <laughs> Now, I, I know something else that was really big uh, in the 90s was, because we'd mentioned ACH in the 70s, is POP started coming around. Now, what did POP really do to change the checking industry? Yes, POP was one of the three ACH e-check, e-check, I should say, uh, products um, that they brought about. So POP stands for point of presentment, or I'm sorry, point of purchase, apologize. And what this allowed was for retail uh, merchants to have a little device sitting at the checkout counter uh, that its only intent was to read the microline. Now, actually, even before POP came about, many retailers had this little micro-reading device because they would use this to connect to uh, companies like Telecheck for um, check authentication to see if you know, they were accepting a, a fraudulent check. But what POP did was said, well, okay, let's take that microline of a consumer check because ACH was only dealing with consumer checks. And let's be able to take that now and create an ACH debit out of it, known with a POP SEC code. And then in the POP transaction, the check was actually given back to the purchaser or the uh, the customer, and they would sign uh, a, a receipt saying that they authorized the conversion of that check to an electronic ACH transaction. And so, this, so this meant now that checks were starting to come out of the, the paper processing world. It made the deposit function for the merchant uh, much easier because it was now an electronic deposit and not having to get paper deposits to its bank either by someone from the store or from the merchant taking it to the bank or a courier coming and getting it, et cetera. And uh, so that was the first of the, the three ACH uh, e-check uh, products. Uh, but I'd like to just stay though within the 90s for a minute because we'll get to the others in the, in the 2000s. Mm -hmm. um, the, the adoption of the high-speed check imaging that I was referring to a little while ago is what took, a, took place among banks uh, throughout the 90s, uh, because for many banks, that was a very big change and a costly change. 
So it wasn't something that, you know, really moved as fast as, you know, might have been expected. But, but it's still in use today, isn't it? Well, there, no, there's very little of the paper capture process taking place today. I mean, the place where you have paper captured today is mostly in the lockbox environment. And that, too, uh, had become image-enabled back in the late 80s uh, with a similar type of workflow, as I described, for the check processing. Okay. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm just, I agree with you. I, I just want to make sure people understand those changes that are taking place and where a lot of this started and what, what it, you know, is meaning to what we're doing today and how it is impacting and different. Yeah, just to stay on the lockbox for a minute, it was, had a very similar process to the check. So when, when the payment was received and you opened the envelope, you'd have typically the payment stub um, as well as the check. Well, initially the check would be encoded uh, and in some cases, the stub and check was kept separate, so you'd have two different paths, and you then had two different balancing functions. Uh, in some cases, they were kept together, uh, but when imaging came about, it meant that I didn't have to do that encoding up front. I could take the contents of the envelope, put them right on a, a sort, reader sorter scanning type device, and then have a similar improved workflow by using images and car uh, to reduce some of the manual steps. And today, there are some of the mail extraction devices um, that actually have the capture capability built within them. So you could load up uh, you know, a large number of envelopes into this device, and not only does it slit the envelope, open the envelope, remove the contents, but it'll actually read and, and create images of the contents and read information all as part of one step. So a vast improvement of where lockbox processing has come over the years. Um, but just staying, uh, closing up the 80s a little bit. Now the imaging that was taking place to improve the upfront process was now able to be stored in archives. And by having images in archives, we were able to do things like introduce image statements. So rather than having checks to be sorted at the end of the month, these images of checks would be sorted and integrated into the statement process. And for larger corporate customers, instead of sending them reams of paper with images because of the volume of checks they wrote, uh, banks would be sending them CD-ROMs. And we don't do CD-ROMs today, but we're still doing that archiving and, and making that available for people. And by making it an image archive, doesn't that make it so much easier to go find an item versus what used to have to be done? No, most definitely. Because, uh, you know, when, when check safekeeping was introduced, I mentioned that earlier, that was the first point in time where checks were starting to retain the paper beyond the statement cycle. It was, they were always had to be retained prior to the statement cycle. And even then, they, a bank might have to go retrieve an item. Uh, but once you, the banks got into check safekeeping and they now started having warehouses storing these checks, uh, made that very difficult. So archive, as you've described, certainly has removed all of that uh, onerous uh, process. And now we have images you know, stored on magnetic media. Uh, and for years, at least for the seven years, that's typically required for record-keeping purposes. 
Wow. And as we all also, as we know, today we could all go log on to our banking account and, uh, and we'll see those checks that we've written. And in most cases, we can also see checks we deposited. So it made this all easier for the consumer. And it's made, it's made the whole industry more information rich, I guess you to use that term. So if we can move on to the 90s now, I guess. So where's Actually, oh. in the essence of time, I, I want to really get to today and get to what happened in the 2000s okay. and today. Can you enlighten us more on really what happened when it came to things like Check 21? What brought about Check 21? Uh, teller capture type situations, more on image exchange, and how it used to be done to where it got us to where we are now and what we're able to see and have happening. Right, and sorry, I said 90s, but I did mean to go into the 2000s, so thank you for catching me there. Right, so the, so the big event of the 2000s, I think we could all look to as Check 21. Check 21 was signed into law on October 28th of 2003 and became effective one year later on October 28th of 2004. Now, th there's a lot of thought that the, the, the travesty of September 11th of 2001 is what brought about Check 21, mm -hmm. but actually the industry and the Federal Reserve and all had been looking at ways to improve the whole clearing process and using the technology that came about in the 90s, the late 80s and the 90s. So not taking anything away from um, the impetus, I think that 9-11 applied to Check 21, uh, but it was not solely what caused it. Now, Check 21 uh, is, <laughs> is sometimes misused. It really had nothing to do with image exchange. What Check 21 did is it allowed for the creation of a substitute check, another piece of paper that represented the original check. The, the substitute check had to accurately display the front and rear of the image of the original check, the included, including the microline on the substitute check, and then some other information, including endorsement. Now, for anyone who's not familiar with how this all got started, you would usually want to ask the question, well, why would I take an image of a check and then create another piece of paper? Mm -hmm. Well, for one thing, the, the, require, or the regulatory aspect of image exchange had not really taken place yet. Uh, but Check 21 did allow for the IRD or image replacement document or substitute check, those terms are synonymous, to represent the legal check. So the image really became a legal entity. Now, just to give you an example of, of why the first steps of Check 21 were the creation of this paper, I'd like to give you my own personal example of what happened. Okay. I, was, I was at Fiserv at the time, and we developed a, a Check 21 solution. So on the night of October 28th of 2004, uh, I was actually in our Atlanta processing center. We worked with a bank uh, known as Intrust Bank out of Wichita, Kansas. Mm -hmm. They captured some images, and they were already using the endpoint exchange uh, uh, system 
whereby it was a closed net exchange, uh, image exchange system, and they were working with some preliminary rule set before the Fed and, and other rule sets came about. But we had them, we had endpoint exchange outsort images of checks drawn on the Federal Reserve Bank in Atlanta. Those images came into the Fiserv office in Atlanta, and we printed those as substitute checks, creating a cash letter on behalf of Intrust Bank. Now, without this capability, Intrust Bank would have outsorted those checks in a paper manner because they were not part of the endpoint exchange system and would have sent them to their local Federal Reserve, who would have then sent them overnight to the Atlanta Federal Reserve, who would have then sent them out to the individual paying banks. Well, within the matter of, I'll say an hour or less, we were able to have images captured in Wichita, Kansas, being printed as substitute checks in the Fiserv Atlanta office, and then put on a courier to go to the nearby Atlanta Fed office. So the idea behind the creation of the substitute check was to start taking time out of the clearing process. And it became particularly advantageous to West Coast banks, who were three hours behind the East Coast, of course, right. and allowing them more time to process because now they can have that image sent across the country to a place on the East Coast that could print the substitute checks and meet deadlines at the Federal Reserve Bank or other commercial banks that they could not have met, met by flying them across the country. So a little bit about Check 21 and, and how it came. Well, I, I just think I'm glad you clarified that the myth behind September 11th caused it. It really just helped to make sure it would pass. And the, the also, you know, I've told people I was doing electronic check processing before it was legal because I got to be involved in some of those projects, too. So it, it's great to hear how some of that happened. And it's also great that you threw in there that a lot of listeners out there, you need to understand you, we get closed in our view of what we're doing and we just see how it affects our jobs where we're at. And we don't always realize, well, other parts of the country, like I tell people what may be happening here in Tampa versus what's happening in San Francisco or even Honolulu can be drastically different. And Check 21 helped to really level that playing field to be able to help everybody out. So let's hear your thoughts on that. I'm sorry, Kevin, were you asking me that? Yeah, yeah. well, are, are they actually just, you know, if you could tell us more uh, on where you saw it lead to and what it got to when it came to image exchange and check. Well, okay, yeah, exactly. So, again, it was the catalyst for image exchange. There's no, no denying that. So then what happened next is, you know, the Federal Reserve, uh, they introduced, you know, some of their rules, um, Reg J, uh, Reg, uh, operating circular three and so forth were updated to allow now for image exchange from the private sector point of view, the echo organization, ECCHO electronic, uh, check clearing house organization. And to get those acronyms, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, wrote the rules for the private sector image exchange. So now we began seeing how, you know, uh, Images were going from correspondent bank to correspondent bank or, you know, a, a depository bank to the Federal Reserve Bank. 
Uh, and in, in the early days, though, even though images were moving, some paying banks were unable to accept images. So one of the requirements of the Check 21 was that it had to be uh, available for all institutions to participate so that if a paying bank was unable to accept an image, they would be presented then with a, a substitute check in its place. So for several years there, the volume of printing of substitute checks was just, I guess you could say astronomical. I don't remember the exact numbers. Uh, Echo did a great job in tracking a lot of volumes and you know, showed graphs as to how it climbed very rapidly, but then it also showed how it declined as more and more banks began participating in image exchange. So again, just so people understand, checks started off, they had to physically move everywhere. Then we got to where at the beginning and early days of image exchange in Check 21, we would actually exchange images, but those images then would be pre reprinted or printed to be able to have a still a physical item that people dealt with. So there still was a lot of paper, even in the early days, we just improved, let's say the transportation method and speed. Is that right? That's correct, yes, that's correct. Yeah, in fact, uh, e even there were even cases where a paying bank would accept an image, but for statement rendering purposes, might create a substitute check solely to put it into the statement. So that was, you know, something, again, most of that is all going away by now. But So staying uh, back to your question of me about, you know, the, the, the changes from Check 21. So being able to use the image now, banks began looking at, well, how can I, capture an image at an earlier point in the presentment or in the in the process and when starting to look at the deposit side of of checks um, banks first looked at their corporate customers uh, you know whether it be a small mom and pop or whether it be a you know whatever size uh, corporation this was instead of them having to bundle up checks every day and get them to their bank um, what was introduced was known as corporate remote deposit capture, or actually the family of remote deposit capture with corporate being the first implementation of it. And here, uh, the uh, corporate customer uh, would, would be able to use what we call the tabletop scanner, uh, one of those large sorters we talked about earlier. I call them bricks. Oh, yeah, called, yeah. <laughs> Brick on the desk. Or, or the toaster was the other name it was yes. also given, you know. Because people didn't realize these things were pretty big. I mean, they were much smaller than the huge ones we had in the back room, but they were still pretty big and took up a little bit of real estate. Yeah, initially they, yeah, they were. But anyway, so this now allowed a corporate customer to create its deposit uh, in image form and, and have it sent directly to its depository bank. Uh, and then the check would just be truncated uh, at the corporate account. It would not have to move beyond its office there. And again, for the depository bank, even if they were still doing some substitute check printing, they at least now had an image coming in uh, to the bank for deposit. And again, as they improved their image clearing, less and less substitute checks were printed. And the, the next, uh, source channel, that's the other term we typically call it in the industry, 
where corporate was a source channel. A second source channel that banks looked to image enable was the ATM, <coughs> where initially or previously, a customer would have to use an envelope at the ATM, write some information about their deposit on the outside of the envelope, insert the check or checks and even deposit ticket into the envelope and then insert it into the ATM. With the image ATM uh, capability, uh, the envelope would no longer be used. And one of the benefits of that, it eliminated the fraudulent empty envelope deposit where someone would write an envelope out for $100 put nothing in the envelope, insert it into the ATM, and then try to immediately or somewhere else withdraw that $100 uh, before the envelope ever got processed. So that was another benefit of the, of the image ATM, as well as reducing courier costs and, and things like that. So that was the second channel that the banks now uh, began stopping the check at its earliest point of, uh, in the process. And then they went then to the branch uh, source, obviously a big source of checks for every bank. And, and if you can see how the, the implementation took place, the banks were obviously looking at cost and risk. So I had lower volumes with corporates. I can control them uh, as much as possible because they're my treasury management type customers. Um, image ATMs, you know, again, the bank themselves can control that, have less control on the customer, but still have control of the environment. And now they then moved into the larger volume area, which was the branches. And um, over time, it was a combination, and still today, some financial institutions uh, will capture at the teller. Uh, others are capturing what we call behind the counter, meaning that the teller would still work in their normal manner. Checks would be collected throughout the day from the tellers and captured in uh, the, the branch capture function versus the teller capture function. But it, in both cases, the truncation occurs at the branch. The images flow from the branch into the back office process and then subsequently into the clearing process. Or, or and most people today just use their phones, right? Well, yes, that was the, um, I guess, a little, little bit more there into the uh, 2000s as well was the uh, mobile capture. Um, that came about really as sort of the last channel. Um, obviously, a little bit different technology uh, in use here. Uh, one of the concerns of from a risk point of view is that you know the consumer now is pretty much in control of the whole thing. And when I say control, particularly with the respect to retaining the check and, and some of the fraud that we've seen come about you know, from the mobile uh, check deposit introduction has been depositing a check mobile in one bank, possibly depositing it as a mobile in another bank, or depositing as a paper check in another bank, or going to a check cashing uh, facility, somehow getting their money more than once. Uh, obviously, um, you know the the fraud the fraud is occurring, and somebody's going to get stuck holding it. It's like, you know, that there's no chairs left when the 
song stops. You know, where do you sit? Right, right. <laughs> so, uh, so there is some of that going on. I think there's, uh, you know, more and more is going on, particularly with duplicate checking and doing duplicate checking across um, your different channels uh, helps with some of this. But it doesn't help much when you're doing it across banks. If the fraud is being perpetrated across banks, it's not really going to be caught until it gets back to the paying bank. And assuming the paying bank has a duplicate uh, detection system, then they would know that the problem occurred. Now, the problem is somebody is still out the money, though. Well, I, I got to say that that's a great point to, to part to actually stop because you're right. Somebody's still out the money. But what has been great about this journey is you've been able to show us from some of the beginnings of check processing, at least in your career, well, the major milestones, the major highlights that are happening and gotten us to the point to where, yeah, people can actually work with their phones, but it doesn't eliminate all the problems. I mean, duplicate processing has been an issue. It's something that I think the industry has gotten together and gotten a control over. Uh, there's always going to be some type of fraud, I believe, in every payment channel. And that's why we have risk controls in place to be able to monitor and limit that fraud when it takes place, too. And, and Bill, I just want to say thank you so much for all the knowledge you shared with us. Um, one question I like to always hit everybody with, though, as, as we close out a series or we close out the show, is what do you think is the next really big thing or what could happen, the future possibilities when it comes to payments and maybe even with checks? What do you think is going to be the next thing to happen? Because I know a lot of people tell me checks are going to go away. Uh, I don't think they're going to go away in my lifetime. And I'm getting up there in years, but I'm not that far up there. And I just don't see that happening. I, I really see, as we saw through this series, an evolution of how checks are used. What would you say is the next thing that might happen or could happen is potentially in check processing? Well, just a, a little point about checks going away. Back in 1970, when I was at the bank, uh, or in, in the early 70s, I guess it was, there had been a Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta study done in conjunction with a consulting firm, Arthur D. Little. And, and one of the things they projected back then is that probably by the 80s, the checks would go away. So being a large correspondent clearing bank as we were back then, we were scrambling, well, what's going to happen to our business? Because that was a very profitable piece of our business. But, you know, here we are and, uh, you know, uh, many decades later, and we still have checks. And in fact, I briefly saw a, an industry um, article this morning about how difficult it is for businesses to get away from checks. Um, but to get back to your question about what is the future, I think what we've, we've seen in the last couple of years is a, a lot of um, talk about faster payments. Mm -hmm. uh, and these are all electronic from initiation you know, on through throughout the process, different than where we have some paper starting and then going electronic. <clears throat> so the, the faster payment is uh, is probably what will be the new rail, as we call it. There's each one of these payment channels has a rail, uh, the check, the ACH, the debit cards and credit cards, etc. Uh, I, I would have to say that that's it. I think there's a lot that's going to have to happen in the business community for faster payments, particularly because of the accounts receivable type information that's needed to flow with the payment. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, 
beyond that, uh, I, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I couldn't sit here and project when paper's going to go away. Uh, it's probably going to be here when I go away. Um, so what else will be happening beyond what we're seeing today? I, I'm not really sure that I, that I have any more further thoughts on that, Kevin. Well, I, I, Bill, I appreciate all your insights and, and still your thoughts that you have shared with us because it is interesting times and what's happening in payments is exciting. We are at a very exciting time where there's a lot of rapid change, a lot of new things happening, but it's not going to take away the old payment channels. And, and, and I don't you know, know how to say that better is, but Chex is an old but very reliable payment channel. And one of the big things that we wanted to get out of this series, and Bill, again, thank you for being here, was to help everybody, I hope all the listeners out there to understand what got us to remote deposit capture, what is some of that terminology that we used, what's it mean today when you do things like you saw in episode one, day one or day two processing, how it's speeded up just being able to have faster funds availability, being able to have image archiving, image exchange. I hope everybody got something out of this. I'm the Payments Professor. I thank everyone for listening to the Payments Podium. If you've got any comments or if there's somebody you would like to have on the show, or maybe there's just a topic you would like to have the professor get an expert of that particular topic to address, you can email me, kevin at paymentsprofessor.com, and we'll do our best to make sure that we get somebody to be able to cover that and provide you with the information that you need. I again, thank everybody for attending. Class dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Payments Podium Podcast. Check back every Thursday for a conversation with the Payments Professor. This podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Olson and edited by Sam Sue Smith. See you on Thursday.